What's up, Brazos Fellowship, and welcome to 2022. It's crazy to even hear myself saying that. My name is Chris, I am the college pastor, and you might notice things look a little different. If you normally join us online, you're used to seeing me in the lobby before the service starts, and today, things are gonna look a lot different. Welcome to Church at Home. Now, this is not my living room, but we wanted to create an experience where it felt like we were joining you in your living room. And so we're so glad that you are with us today. Justin and the band are gonna be out in a minute and they're gonna lead us in a song and then Pastor Will is gonna come and give an incredible message to kick off a new year, really just challenging and encouraging this idea, where does your hope come from? We all have access to this amazing hope that we can walk into a new year with confidently knowing that our hope comes from Jesus. You're gonna wanna stick around for that. Now, if you are joining us for the first time, maybe your friends or your family sent you a link or they shared this with you, welcome. We're glad that you are here and we hope that you will enjoy this time, that you'll be encouraged by church at home, whether you're in your living room or you are with family and friends right now. And then we would love to invite you to come join us next week. We're gonna be back together at our regularly scheduled times of 9.30 and 11 a.m. here on our campus at Brazos Fellowship, as well as during our 11 o'clock service, we stream online on our website at brazosfellowship.com. What happens here at church on our campus is for both our 9.30 and 11 o'clock services, we have programming for our kids, which is up through fifth grade. And then during our 11 o'clock service, we have programming for middle school and high school over in the annex. There's something for everyone, age appropriate environments, and we would love for you to come and join us and be with us for church, whether in person or online. And get ready, today is going to be a fantastic service. We hope you had a wonderful Christmas. Merry Christmas from us here at Razz Fellowship. Happy New Year. Let's have church.
Pray forever His kingdom come. Happy 2022 to everybody and thank you for joining us for Church at Home. As we kick off this new year, this is a year that I'm sure for many of you, I, I can't speak for everybody, but for many of you, it's a year that's filled with some uncertainty. We're not sure about the future. Maybe you're one of the many people who, through 2021, were a part of the, the great resignation, that quit their jobs in search of more meaningful work, looking for a job that would really be fulfilling. And you're kind of in the middle of that journey right now, and it's just a little uncertain. And maybe with that, you're having some kind of uncertainty or hopelessness when it comes to your finances. It's just been a constant struggle for you. Uh, maybe it's your marriage. Maybe your marriage has fallen on hard times. Or maybe it's like, Pastor Will, it's been there for a long time. We're just trying to make it through another year. It's been really tough. Maybe it's your kids. You're worried about them. You pray about them for them all the time. You're worried about their future, about their choices that they're making. It's just constantly a burden on your heart. Maybe you're feeling that right now. Um, maybe it's your health. Maybe you've been diagnosed with something or you're worried about something or somebody that you love, really concerned about that. We bring all kinds of uncertainty into a brand new year, but it's in these times that we need an anchor of hope that we can place our faith in, something that can give stability to us in unstable times, to be able to give us certainty in uncertain times, give us hope. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, because that hope that I'm talking about, this entire message that I want to share with you today, is built on the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it is only helpful, it is only hopeful if it is true. It can't just be metaphorical or symbolic. It has to be actually, physically, historically true. And when it is found to be true, the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, guys, it is what gives us the faith that is both reasonable and rational. It, it gives us a logical place to place our faith that is immovable regardless of our circumstances. So to explain what I mean by that and, and kind of unpack that idea, I want to turn our attention to a conversation that was had. It was had just about 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it was the Apostle Paul, and he was standing before both the Roman governor Festus and the king, King Agrippa, who was the grandson, by the way, of great King Herod that we talk about every Christmas because he was the king who was in charge at the time of Jesus' birth. But King Agrippa and Governor Festus were there present, and they brought Paul before them. They wanted to hear about all of this nonsense in their minds. What, what was Paul talking about that was creating such an uproar? What was causing such a huge movement sociologically in their kingdom? So Paul began to share about the resurrection of Jesus, the core, the kernel of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that Jesus had died and he had resurrected and there were eyewitnesses everywhere, seemingly. And in the middle of this conversation, in the middle of this presentation, if you will, from Paul, Festus stops him, and here's what he says. He says, 
You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. So he's trying to publicly kind of shame him in this moment. And Paul, I love his response. He is respectful, but he's also confident. He comes back and he says, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. Paul replied, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. And he ends by saying, I'm convinced that none of this escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Now, this word here for reasonable, let me define that. He says this is reasonable. Reasonable means it's carefully thought out and rational. He's going, I'm showing you that these are real events. These are, happened with real people present, that Jesus actually died. Lots of people saw it. He was put in a tomb. That was recorded very firmly. And then he was resurrected from the dead and people witnessed him all over the place. And he says, the king, you're familiar with these things. Like I can speak openly because you know what I'm saying is true. And what's interesting is that both of these guys leave that room and they have no real response. Agrippa, his only response was, do you think I'm going to become a Christian so quickly? Like in such a short period of time? He didn't refute the facts. He just was like, you really think I'm going to become a follower of Jesus so quickly? And of course, Paul's response is, short or long period of time. My hope and prayer is that all of you will become like me, except for these chains. And he was chained up. He was arrested at the time. But Paul pours out his heart. He reveals to us the kernel and the core of not only the gospel, but the core of the, the faith of Christianity is it is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the most concise places in the New Testament where Paul really brings this down is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1, and then 3 through 8. I want us to take a look at that together. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. In other words, before anything else, before everything else I ever taught you or anything else you remember about the Christian faith or about Jesus or anything, I want you to remember what I'm about to tell you. This is it. This is the nucleus, if you will, of Christianity. This is the nucleus, if you will, of the faith that Jesus was passing on to us. And here's what he says. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And, and notice this, he mentions this a couple of times, according to the scriptures, like that these were things prophesied about by Jesus himself and those of the Old Testament, the prophets. He says, these things are according to what God had proclaimed and put into place long ago, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. There it is again. And that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. And he's going to go through a whole litany of people who witnessed Jesus resurrected. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of them, of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and at last he appeared also to me also, rather. And so what he does for us here is gives us this beautiful blueprint of what the resurrection uh, evidence is. And, and I want to walk you through this. There's three different things I want to talk about. And so the evidence of the resurrection, which was for Paul and the first century Christians, was a bedrock for hope 
and helpfulness and stability and certainty. And I believe it is still that for us who are followers of Jesus Christ. So let me talk about the first one. The first one is the empty tomb, the empty tomb. Paul wanted to make sure that his listeners understood, and us right down to this day, anyone who was to read this letter, anyone who wants to read all of his letters, is that Jesus didn't just die. He was placed in a grave, that he was put in a tomb. In other words, this was a physical reality. This was not a metaphorical death or a symbolic death, but that he wanted us to understand that those who buried Jesus laid a dead corpse, to be really brutally honest, dead corpse in the grave. That was what happened. And what's interesting is that to this day, the empty tomb is accepted by the vast majority of historical scholars, even those who are not Christians, even those who would say they're not sure they believe in a resurrection, but there is an undeniable empty tomb recorded for us in history. It's, it's one of those things that you just can't get away from. And when we look at the New Testament records of those who wrote what the response was after Jesus resurrected, you see that time and again, the followers of Jesus in the first century, they were not just proclaiming that Jesus was willing, uh, that Jesus resurrected from the dead. They were willing to put their life on the line for this information over and over again, not by the tens or the hundreds, but by the thousands and the tens of thousands. I'll talk more about that in a little bit. Dr. Peter J. Williams in his book, Can We Trust the Gospels? I love this quote. He shares, therefore, it is hard to imagine a belief in the risen Jesus getting very far if one could easily go to the grave in which he was still present. Like, wait, 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 Jesus is still in the grave. And we forget this, ladies and gentlemen, but the people in the first century are a whole lot like the people in the 21st century. I mean, they didn't have iPhones, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have social media and all of that, but they process things just like we did. Their willingness to believe that somebody came back from the dead was going to be just as, like, suspicious as ours would be. Like, show me the empty grave. Show me some evidence. And they would go check it out. And believe you me, both the Jews and the Romans, in their mind, had a lot to lose having a resurrected Jesus running around the landscape. So they would have, and did, check it out. If they could prove that Jesus did not resurrect, if they could have drugged his body, his dead corpse through the town, hung it up somewhere and said, here's your Jesus, they would have done that. I promise you. But it didn't happen. And scholars upon scholars are saying, this is one of those parts of history that if you do not accept this faith, you have a really complicated problem to solve historically. How do you, how do you answer this? How do you explain this? Here's the second piece of evidence. The large number of eyewitnesses. The large number of eyewitnesses. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of diverse people across a huge swath of circumstances and events and times, morning and evening, all these different things, and that they were witnessed over and over by lots of different people. Some have speculated, well, a few just had some hallucinations. They just wanted so bad to see Jesus as they sort of conjured it up within themselves. But as you're going to see in a minute, what happened, what followed, 
is not how hallucinations work. Let me just share with you some of the sightings that are recorded for us in the New Testament. The resurrected Jesus was recorded in appearing in Judea, in Galilee, in town, on the countryside, indoors and outdoors. By the way, I'm giving you all the scripture references. If you want to hit pause and go back and look them up, please feel free to do that. He, he was seen in the morning. He was seen in the evening. He was seen by prior appointment, without prior appointment. He was seen at a distance he was seen up close. He was seen on a hill. He was seen beside a lake. He was seen by groups of men. He was seen by groups of women. He was seen by individuals. He was seen by a huge group of 500 all at once. He was seen sitting. He was seen walking. He was seen eating. They were watching him physically eat things. And he was always, always talking and teaching wherever he went. And all of these people collectively corroborated, yes, did you see what I saw? Yes, I saw that. Oh, my gosh. Our ability to interpret reality as those first century people knew it was compared against one another. And there wasn't just one person, as using Paul's language, back in a corner somewhere writing about this. It was public. It was open, public information to be verified, to, to be tested in terms of evidence, to be looked at over and over again. And it's just, it's beautiful to see how that it was in this New Testament followers of Jesus Christ, as they came together and as they trusted what Jesus had told them, and now for the first time, they're having to live it out and really put it into practice. It is showing us that this was beyond just theoretical. This was way beyond just theoretical. And some have said that these testimonies of the sightings of Jesus were just first century people making things up. But I love that Paul was so open about these public documents that were well attested, one of which was 1 Corinthians that I just shared with you, the, the Acts of the Apostles. These were well circulated, copied. People were looking at them. They were out there. And he's just challenging people. He's saying most of which, all of these eyewitness um, people, they are still readily accessible and available for you to go and interview and check it out. And that's exactly what they did. And that is exactly why the Christian faith took off like wildfire. Now, in addition to this, and this is often brought up. One of the things that validates these early Christian documents, the Gospels, is the fact that the Gospel writers included that on that first Easter morning, it was women. It was women who discovered the resurrected Jesus first. At a time, and this is what makes this so significant, at a time that was intensely patriarchal, so much, in fact, that women could not give public testimony in a court of law. But yet God says it will be the ladies that will testify to the men that my son has come back from the dead. And the fact that they recorded it this way, historians again, they say this is proof. This shows that the gospel writers were way more concerned with accuracy than persuasiveness. If they just wanted to fabricate a story that would make more people, especially of their day, to trust the story, they would not have told it this way. But they wanted the persuasiveness of the story to come from its truthfulness, that it was accurate, that it was actually God's gospel and truth. And that's what they wanted to use to draw people 
to this message. It's powerful. So that leaves us with these two hard facts, the empty tomb and eyewitnesses. Now, historians would say if we had one without the other, it could be plausible and, and you could make the argument that maybe the resurrection didn't happen. But the fact that we have both of those together creates undeniable historical evidence that something absolutely supernatural happened around the resurrection of Jesus. Undeniable. And one of the foremost New Testament historians in the world, Dr. N.T. Wright at Oxford University in England, he says that if someone is to take the resurrection and pluck it out of history, say no, that, didn't, that really didn't happen. He says they are left with a formidable challenge to try to explain these two historical facts in light of that. And Dr. Antine Wright, in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, he puts it this way. The early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or the sightings of the risen Jesus. Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. Not the pagans, not the Jews, nobody, right? To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history, I love this, and to enter into a fantasy world of our own. One of the greatest minds, historical minds of our day, saying, listen, if we're going to be intellectually, academically consistent about the way we interpret reality and history, we have to look at this with better eyes instead of just writing it off because it's hard to explain. Now, here's the last piece of evidence, and I feel like, in my opinion, maybe one of the most powerful of all of them. Number three is the inexplicable rise of the early church. The inexplicable rise of the early church. That you had both Jews, you had those coming out of Judaism and paganism and all other kinds of worldviews of that day. And they were overnight, I mean immediately, accepting the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just as fact, but it was the foundational like central theme and, and, and bedrock of their faith that they proclaimed openly and honestly to a world that couldn't believe it either. But they pointed to the evidence and people began to come to faith in huge numbers. As we go back to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostle. Now, Acts opens at right around 30 A.D. It closes right around 60 AD. It's about a 30-year-long history right there of, of chronicling how the early church got started. And in this period of time, we have 150 followers of Jesus in the upper room in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and they spill out into the street after the Holy Spirit comes. And by the end of the book, historians estimate that we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 250,000 followers of Jesus Christ in a 30-year period. A quarter of a million people? Where did that come from? How did that happen? How do, how do we explain such a thing? It's just almost boggles the mind because especially when you look at the fact that it happened in the context of a time in history with some of the most intense persecution that Christians have ever faced within the Roman Empire. But these people were not just claiming faith in Jesus. They were willing to die for it powerful. What would have caused such an enormous sociological shift to take place in history? What would have caused that incredible shift to take place in history? 
And Dr. Wright concludes um, that it is impossible to account for the early Christian belief in Jesus as Messiah without the resurrection. How do you account for this kind of rise? How do you account for what took place and their willingness to endure the kind of insane persecution that they went through? And what I want to present to you today is that what brought incredible peace and hope that surpasses all human understanding in the first century can bring us that same kind of peace and hope today. What brought them hope in the middle of that most insane and intense persecution in the history of the world can give us hope in a time of uncertainty and hopelessness in 2022. And I just want to encourage you today that you would lay hold of this living hope that God extends to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And going all the way back to, remember uh, Paul when he was listing out all of those who witnessed the resurrected Jesus. The first one he names is Cephas, it's Peter. I want to quote from Peter right now. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And here's what Peter says. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is His great mercy that He has given us new birth in a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead. That it was, it's through the resurrection of Jesus that we have this living hope. What does that living hope mean? It means a profound certainty about the future. Profound, deep, unshakable. That's where it comes from. And to, to kind of tease that out further, what that means for us personally is that we will be resurrected just as Jesus was. And you know how we know that? It's because Jesus resurrected from the dead. And because Jesus resurrected, we can trust everything else he ever said, everything else he ever taught. Of all the miracles, of all the things that you would be able to pull off in your life, bringing yourself back from the dead, <laughs> I think we can all agree, there's nothing that even comes close, there's not even close second to that one. But Jesus' resurrection, it gives us so many things. Jesus' resurrection, it gives profound meaning and purpose to life. Jesus' resurrection means that we can be forgiven of everything we've ever done, said, or thought. That we can be fully and totally restored in Him. He's given this as a gift to us. His resurrection means that we have an eternal hope. That we are a part of an eternal kingdom. We are children of an eternal family that belong to an eternal father. And he loves us. And he has promised this to us. And we can trust that promise. And today I want to ask you, where have you lost hope? Where are you struggling to hold on to your hope? Maybe it is with your job or your finances. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's... It's your kids, you're having trouble. It's just hard, it's just a hard season for you right now. It's very hard to hold on to hope. Maybe it is your health, or it's something else I haven't even named. It's, it's something, this impending doom that just feels like it won't go away. What is that? Would you be willing to bring that to God today and say, God, I need your, your help, I need your hope. I'm placing all of my faith, I'm putting all of my trust in you and I want to lay hold of this living hope 
that is only accessible through Jesus and through his resurrection. Would you be willing to do that right now? I'm asking you to just to pray a simple application prayer with me today, simply saying, Jesus, I'm inviting you to be my living hope. And that's going to mean different things for different people. For some of you, inviting Jesus to be your living hope means for the first time ever, you're asking him to come in, forgive you of all sin, cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and become a child of God. And begin this year right. Begin this year following Jesus. You've tried everything else, and it hasn't worked out. You, you, you could give testimonies of lots of different options that this life options that life offers that do not work and now it's time to trust wholly and totally and completely yourself with him would you do that today and those of you who are followers of jesus christ maybe it's time you've been carrying this burden far too long and it's time just to say jesus i need your help i need to fully and completely trust you i need to give this over to you god can provide he knows exactly how he made you. He knows the exact right career or job for you. He knows how to fix your finances. Put him first in your finances. He knows how to fix marriages. He knows how to reconcile. He's like a master at reconciling and, and resurrecting things that feel dead. He can do it. You've got to trust him. You've got to invite him in the middle of it and let him have first place. Invite him into the raising of your children. Invite him in and trust him, trust him, right? And so right now, what I'd like to do is lead us in a word of prayer. And in the prayer, I want to ask you to, to give over to Jesus whatever it is you've been carrying that has been burdening you and draining the hope right out of you. Give it over to him. And those of you who have never asked Christ into your life, never asked him to forgive sin and be the Lord of your life, I want to ask you to become a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, a child of God, starting right here, right now the beginning of this new year. So if you would, let's bow together in prayer and ask Jesus to meet us right here in this moment. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being willing to give up the beauty, the power, the exaltation of heaven and to humble yourself to come to earth and take on human form. And you took on more than that. You took on our sin. You took on our burden. You took on our hopelessness. You died in our place. And you resurrected from the dead. And you were witnessed by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And you left, you left us all kinds of evidence to point to the fact that you are our living hope. And I pray right now, whoever's listening to this message, wherever you are right now, would you just say, Jesus, you are my living hope. I trust you. And here's the area right now, Lord, that has been bleeding and draining the hope out of me. I have struggled to hold on to hope or I have just completely given up. Here it is. I give it to you right now. I give you this marriage, this job search, this financial situation, these kids, my health, my future, whatever it is. Would you just give it to him right now? Trust him with it. I trust you to guide me through this. Breathe a deep breath of relief. You're not in it alone anymore. He's with you. And right now, I just want to ask you, right where you sit, if you've never asked Christ to be the forgiver of your sin and the Lord of your life, would you just ask him in right now? 
Just say, Jesus, right now, I'm asking you to forgive all my sin that has separated me from you. I'm asking you to be the Lord of my life. I am trusting that when you died on the cross and resurrected from the dead, not only was that a historical fact, but also it was done for me, for you personally, for you. And you just ask him, forgive all my sin, be the Lord of my life, and I will follow you the rest of my days. If you just prayed that prayer for the first time, the Bible tells us you are born again and you are a child of God. And we praise God for that. Amen. Thank you guys for checking us out today, being a part of Church at Home. God bless you guys, and we'll see you back next Sunday.